community for people who've given up on church but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! Well, uh, we're going to start a new series today, but I want to begin with this. You know, one of my favorite things about growing up and getting older is remembering some of the stupid stuff I did when I was younger. Uh, and now that I'm the ripe old age of uh, 25-ish, uh, now my daughter's getting ready to uh, go off to college next year, if you can believe it. Holy cow, how time flies. But when I was young, I remember this um, intense pressure that I felt to fit in. Do you remember that feeling? Like the, the, the pressure you feel to do what everyone else is doing so that you blend in so you don't stand out? I remember the first time I felt this pressure acutely was in fifth grade. I won't tell you the year, but let's just say the movie Breakdance had just come out. If, anybody remember Breakdance? A couple of y'all? Yeah, okay, right, right. And, uh, and what did you have to have? What went with the Breakdance craze? You remember this? Do you remember parachute pants? Okay, raise hands high if you owned a pair of parachute pants. Come on, just own it. Yeah, you remember these? Zippers everywhere. You remember these things? They were awesome, right? So all my friends were getting parachute pants. There we go. We have a picture of them. Yeah. And, uh, and I didn't have any. I remember just begging my mom, Mom, can we go to Mervyn's, which was the cool place, Mervyn's, and get me a pair of parachute pants, please, please, please. And which was funny because I couldn't break dance at all. I barely could square dance. But, uh, you know, I, had, I needed parachute pants. So, uh, so that was the first time I felt it. But I also remember feeling it even more intensely when I got into middle school. Uh, when I started middle school, there's a brand new hair craze that was going around for guys. And some of you guys will remember this. Uh, you might not remember the hair, but you, you remember this. And, and you had feathered hair. Does anybody remember feathered hair? We actually have a photo of me from middle school with my feathered hair. Um, there it is. Right, yeah, uh. Okay, that's not me. That's George Michael. But, but I, I looked basically like that without the eyeliner. And so there was a... Uh, but I had this feathered hair, and I just thought, man, I was the coolest with feather, you know. I'm just so thankful. I was talking with somebody between services. I am so thankful Facebook did not exist when I was in middle school, <laughs> right? Like, hello. Uh, but, you know, as bad as guys had it, as bad as guys had it, women in the 80s, do you remember what you had to do with your hair? Remember the, remember the big hair? Remember big hair? Take a look at this. This is one of my favorite big hair photos. Look at that. Is that awesome? I mean, the higher, the better. Do you remember this? You would go, my sister would go through an entire can of hairspray in one morning. And then you brought an extra can in your purse for lunchtime. Do you remember this? It was like, whoosh, you know. But lest women, lest you think you were the ones to invent big hair, women of the 80s. Women of the 60s, if you're here, own it. Do you all remember your big hair? This is what yours looked like. Yeah, see, remember? <laughs> I do not know how you did that. Like, how did you do that, ladies? Is that even real? It's like a helmet. Like, it's just like a Darth Vader helmet on top. You know? Anyway, it's so funny to me, the things we do in an effort to fit in, in an effort to what sociologists call conform to social standards, right? To conform. To conform is to adopt the beliefs, the habits, or the behaviors of group norms. And we all feel that pressure so intensely, don't we? We don't just feel it in middle school. We even feel it today if we're honest, that pressure to do what everyone else is doing so that we don't stand out. Well, today I want to uh, talk a little bit about this conformity thing with you. And let me just say up front, not all conformity is bad, right? There's some good kinds of conformity. 
I, like, I'm grateful that you conformed to our cultural norm and took a shower this morning. If you didn't raise, no, I'm not going to say, don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand. I'm, I, I'm glad that we all conform and drive on the same side of the road, mostly. Uh, or, th- or that we, we know how to stand in line at Walmart, right? There's some good kinds of conforming. But what do we do? What, what happens when our values, our, our, our deeply held convictions or belief come in conflict with cultural norms? What do we do then? What do we do when we're faced with the decision to either conform or resist and live by conviction? especially when living by conviction is going to come with some costs. It's going to come with some consequences. What do we do then, right? Well, that's kind of what I want to kick around with you today as we start a brand new series on the book of Daniel. Daniel is a guy in the Old Testament, and you might know Daniel. Uh, In fact, if you grew up going to church, uh, uh, I did not. I did not grow up in the church. I'm I'm the only Christian in my family. I became a Christian in high school, so I was not privied to the flannel graph of Sunday school. Remember flannel graphs, right? It's so great. Some of y'all remember Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel has this encounter with the lions. We're actually going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. Uh, But Daniel's life began way, way, way before the lion episode. Daniel was born 600 years before Jesus. He lived in Jerusalem, the capital. Uh, He was part of the noble class there. But at age 16, right when Daniel's life was just about to take off, right at the top of his game, Daniel's life took a sudden turn. Jerusalem gets sacked. It actually gets besieged by an oppressing empire. Uh, It gets destroyed. And Daniel and all of his friends get taken back as prisoners of war to live in the capital of the empire, the empire Babylonia, the capital, capital Babylon. Now, Babylon was a very, very dark place. And uh, Babylon, you can think of as, as that kind of soul-crushing, faith-crushing type of place. You probably have a Babylon in your life, too. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's just cultural challenges in general. But we all know what it's like to face a Babylon. In Babylon, Daniel faces fears about his future, concerns for his safety, his very life. He faces pressures to conform and discouragement from a culture around him that was anything but accepting of his faith. But in spite of all of that, in spite of all the opposition, all the animosity, all the pressure, somehow in the midst of that, Daniel's faith actually grew. Daniel didn't just survive in Babylon, Daniel thrived. And so what we're going to be looking at in this series is what was Daniel's secret? What did Daniel know about a thriving faith in the face of Babylon? Well, that's where we're going to jump in today. And today I want to talk about this question of conformity specifically because Daniel's going to face this pressure and at a critical juncture in his life right when he gets to Babylon. So I'm going to uh, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to look at his story for about the first half of the message today. And then I'm just going to quickly give you three secrets, three things I think Daniel knew about thriving in Babylon that might actually serve us as we face our own kinds of Babylons. We game? All right, you guys are awake. Here we go. So let's jump in. Daniel chapter 1. You can follow along in a Bible if you brought one or if you want to follow along on your phone. I will have all of the verses on the screens. If you do not own a Bible, please take one of ours as our gift to you. Uh, In our Bibles, it's on page 719. So here we go. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. We ready? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Okay, I, I just have to stop right there. 
because the youth pastor who introduced me to Jesus, he had a, a tradition that whenever we read Nebuchadnezzar out loud, because Nebuchadnezzar's the bad guy, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, whenever we read it out loud, we, we had to either boo or hiss. So which, do, do we want to boo or hiss today? Boo? Are we going to boo? Okay, the first, the first service is hiss, but you guys are the booers. All right, all right, so let's try this. Here we go, ready? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, oh, so good, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim. Who delivered him? The Lord. Underline that. We're coming back to that. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. Now, what's going on here? These two verses set the stage for everything that's going to follow. And so I want to give you a little bit of the backstory because it, you might know Daniel's story, but you might not know where Daniel's story fits in the bigger story of the Bible. Daniel's story happens in the Old Testament, and the best summary I know of for the Old Testament is that it is like one giant episode of Game of Thrones, right? So y'all gain some Game of Thrones out, just everybody, kings just like constantly like, right? All right, so, he, so here's, here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to show you a map, a moving map in just a minute, I want to catch you up to speed on Daniel's story. So you might remember, let's begin with Moses. Moses leads God's people up out of Egypt, out of slavery, to the land of the Canaanites, Canaan there. And then uh, Joshua takes over, and he leads God's people into Canaan. They attack the Canaanites, and they conquer them. And for the first time in the history of God's people, they are their own nation. Now, they're ruled by judges for a while. Then Saul becomes king. Then David after him. And then finally, David's son, Solomon. Now, Solomon doesn't lead so well. Uh, and there's a division in the kingdom. The, God's nation divides to a north and a south. The north is known as Israel. The south is known as Judah. And the city of Jerusalem is in Judah. That'll be important here in a minute. Now, they start to get really worried because there's rumor that to the north is a small little nation uh, called Syria. And everybody's worried that they're going to be like the, the people from Pittsburgh. They're going to come south and take over everything in your town. And so everybody's getting nervous about this, but actually there's a much larger empire named Assyria that they really need to be afraid of. And eventually Assyria comes, and Assyria sacks the little Pittsburgh nation, and it also sacks Israel, the northern kingdom. They take God's people from the north into exile back into Assyria, never to be seen again. Now, while this is all going on, a much larger nation, the nation of Babylonia, Babylon, as it's referred to, begins to rise, and it conquers Assyria, it conquers Judah, it conquers everything in the known world, and they begin deporting God's people, just like Daniel, from Jerusalem back to Babylon. In fact, Daniel was a part of the very first wave of prisoners of war to be taken to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. That was a test, y'all are on. All right, now... Wasn't that kind of cool? Is that cool to get a visual of that, right? That's like, okay. So in case none of that tracked with you, let me give you a modern day analogy, okay? Just imagine, just imagine, uh, we're here in North Carolina. We're kind of the southern kingdom. Imagine like Virginia is the northern kingdom, right? Those northern Virginians. All right, so here we go. Uh, imagine one day Canada decides to attack the U.S. And they come down and they not only conquer Pittsburgh, but they come all the way to the Virginia border, right? And they stop there. 
Now, we're okay here in North Carolina because we're like, well, hey, they didn't take us and besides they're Canadians, right? Like, what are they going to do, right? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't mean to pick on you, Aaron. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm just teasing. But like, so Canada comes, right? And, we're done. and we thought that was bad, but then we think it's over when all of a sudden out of nowhere comes Russia and Russia comes across the strait and they sack Canada and they sack Pittsburgh and they sack Virginia and they sack us and they don't stop sacking until they get to Mexico. They sack the whole world. And then they take you and me and our loved ones and they deport us back to Moscow to serve as slave labor for Stalin. Are we starting to feel Daniel's pain a little bit now? See, now this story is a little bit alive, isn't it? Well, not only do they take the people, as bad as that is, not only do they take the people, but they actually take artifacts, elements of worship from God's temple in Jerusalem, and he takes them back and puts them in his God's temple as a way of saying nanny, nanny, boo-boo. That's what it says in Hebrew, just so you know, right? It's, he's mocking Yahweh. He's mo- Who is this God? How useless is he? We have conquered him. Get a feel for that? Now, this is where Daniel's story is just beginning. In verse 3, Daniel is now in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, and he is going to become a part of Nebuchadnezzar's brainwashing, conforming, you see, I'm going to have to be careful, y'all are going to get me on that, uh, project for them. And this is where we pick up in verse 3. Let me read this to you. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, that's kind of a cool name, right? Any babies? Babies? coming? All right, Ashpenaz, cool baby name. Chief of his court officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men, listen to this description of Daniel and his friends. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. You see, this this king was a smart man. He knew that in order to conquer God's people, it was not enough to destroy the city. He knew it was not enough to take their worship artifacts from their temple. He knew he needed to attack their identity. And the way to do this was through what might be called Babylon's conformity plan. And there were three parts to this. The first part of this was they would teach Daniel and his friends the Babylonian language. Anyone who has learned a foreign language knows this is a powerful tool, right? To learn a language is to learn to think like those who speak that language. So the thought was, if we can can teach them the Babylonian language, we can teach them to think like us. They will no longer think like God's people. Secondly, it was the literature push. They they, they would be immersed in the religious literature of the Babylonian culture. That included all the Chaldean gods and even some of the Canaanite gods and gods like Baal and these that, that, that were the arch enemies of Yahweh, the very ones that God's people were to reject and not to worship. But it didn't stop with the language and the literature. It also went to the food, which is really interesting. Maybe in doing the food, maybe in teaching them to eat the food of the Babylonians, they could teach them to consume just like the Babylonians. 
Well, the chief official takes this conformity plan one step further. I find this really fascinating. In the very next verse, we're told that he changes Daniel's name. Now, Daniel's name, Daniel, it means the God, that God is my judge. That's what Daniel's birth name actually meant. But the chief of the courts here changes his name to Belteshazzar, which sounds kind of cool until you realize that it literally means Prince of Baal or Prince of Satan. Not a baby name, okay? Not a baby name. Don't, don't, don't accidentally use that one for baby name. So yeah, things have gotten really dark for Daniel, right? I mean, he's lost his family. He's lost his culture. He's lost his power. He's lost his freedom. Now he's lost his name. He is at risk of losing his very identity as he is oppressed in Babylon. Things are not going well at all. But notice what happens next. Because in the very next verse, Daniel is going to be confronted with a crisis, a moment where he is going to either have to decide to go with the flow, to conform to the Babylonian expectations, or to resist and live by conviction. Look at what it says in verse 8. But, don't you love that but? It is pregnant with potential. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, we're going to get into what that means to defile and the food and all that, but but just pause here for a minute. Just, Just get back into the Stalin mindset for just a second. Can you imagine how much courage it must have taken Daniel to do that? I mean, just even just to to ask the question, to take the step, to risk. His very life is in their hands, as we'll see next week. But he risks it. He says, I can can go no further. I cannot violate this. I will not defile myself in this way. They can change my language. They can change my religion. They can try to change even my name, but I will not go against my God's laws. And it's here that we learn our first lesson from Daniel in this series. It's here that we today, in the 21st century, have something to learn from Daniel, and that is this, namely, that those who belong to God are called to a life of conviction, not conformity. You see, you try to walk this Christian life. For those of you who would identify, say, hey, Aaron, I'm I'm trying to follow Jesus. I'm trying to do this Christian thing. For those of you who would say, I'm doing this Christian thing, there will come a time where you will be faced where something about your convictions, your beliefs, your values, what you believe will come head to head with a pressure in our culture to conform. And what will you do? See, Daniel had grown up studying the Torah. That, that's the Mosaic law. He would have memorized. He would have known these laws by heart. He knew the dietary restrictions spelled out in the book of Leviticus that God had declared certain foods clean, they were permissible for his people to eat, and certain foods unclean, they were to not eat those foods. Now you might say, Aaron, what's the big deal about food? I mean, it's just food, right? Well, in our day and age, this can sound kind of strange. I, I don't know about you, but I love to eat food from other cultures. Like that's one of my hobbies. We go on a date night, my wife, we, want, we go to find the, the restaurants that we've never been to. That's our favorite thing to do. But in the ancient world, there was a connection between the foods you ate and who you were. In other words, the food you ate said something about your identity, about who you belonged to. 
And lest we think we have grown past this in the 21st century, you just try talking to someone from Lexington, North Carolina about switching their barbecue sauce. Right? It's an identity. It's who they are. You see, God's people, God's people were called to be holy. What does that mean? Well, we can get a little bit sideways on this one. We, we hear that word holy, and depending on kind of your church experience, uh, you might think of like the church lady from Saturday Night Live. Y'all remember the church lady, right? It's, you know, this uptight, persnickety, a lot of other words I won't use. Anyway, she's, she's just not the kind of person you want to be around, but, but she's talking about holiness. That is not holiness as the Bible use it, uses it. Excuse me. The word holy simply means to be set aside, to be distinct from, to be different from those around you. That's what it means to be holy. And that is what the dietary laws are all about. I mean, I remember being so puzzled by this when I was a new Christian. I'm breathing what does God care about whether I eat alligator or not, right? Does it really matter? It, it was about holiness, not about the alligator. You see, God's people, when they first formed, all the way back to Moses, we just saw that part of the story, they were surrounded by all kinds of people. They they were surrounded, and, and they were to be distinct from those people partly by the foods they ate. Don't eat the foods of the Philistines or the Hittites or the Moabites or the cowboy... Uh, fights. Uh, you, those people are to be avoided at all costs. They're evil, right? That's the, sorry, cowboy fans. I just, I know. Uh, but that was the idea, to be distinct from, to be called out, to be holy. That's what these dietary laws are about. Now, last thing, and then we'll move on from the food. As Christians, we know that these dietary laws don't apply to us anymore. Jesus was very clear in Mark's gospel. He says, he, uh, Mark tells Jesus declared all foods clean. So you go eat barbecue alligator, right? I mean, go to town. Just make sure it's Lexington-style barbecue alligator. But whatever you're going to do, if we can eat all foods. But the principle of holiness behind this still applies to us today. Peter reminds us of it in his epistle in the New Testament. Listen to the way Peter describes our role as the church. He says, but you, you church, you Westlake, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Interesting. So here we are today. And if you identify as a Christian, this is the first challenge that comes to you from the book of Daniel. Is there any area in your life where you have forsaken conviction for the sake of conformity? Is there any area in your life where you have forsaken your conviction for the sake of conformity? I don't know what that might be for you. When I was prepping this message, I started to list some different things. And I thought, well, maybe like workplace stuff, you know, you're working and there's just kind of a certain way that business gets done at your work and kind of inside you feel icky about parts of it because, you know, that's not really the right way. It's kind of, I don't know, kind of goes, but you know, I don't want to rock the boat, right? You ever feel that way? Or or maybe kind of in your social circles, uh, there's kind of this weird inclusion, exclusion thing that your group does to kind of feel better about themselves. They make sure certain people don't get invited to certain things. And, you know, or they talk about those people when they aren't there or whatever that is. And, and you kind of feel like, I don't know. I, I, this doesn't feel right. To, there's something that goes, but you kind of, you don't want to, you don't want to go against the grain. 
Or maybe it's in some other area of morality or, or finances or, or, or just any part of our lives where, where we experience the pressure to go with the flow even though it goes against our conviction. What might that be for you? One author, uh, of a, one commentator describes it this way. He, he frames the question, what is the food and wine? Remember the pressure to eat the food and wine of the king. What is the food and wine that our modern emperors are pressuring us to eat today? Interesting question. Now, the truth is, the truth is, that going against the grain, standing on our conviction can be very, very scary, can't it? We don't know what the consequences are going to be. We, like Daniel, we don't know what's going to happen. So how do we find the courage to live by conviction when it would be much easier to simply conform? Well, that's why I want to turn back to Daniel with these last few minutes. And we're going to go quick. I just want to give you three things, three secrets that I think I see in Daniel's story that might help us today. The first is this. What enabled Daniel to live a life of conviction The first thing is that Daniel had hope, real hope, deep hope. See, Daniel knew that just because he was living in Babylon, that did not mean that God was no longer in control. I mean, it looked like God had lost control, right? Babylon has sacked the whole known world at the time. Nebuchadnezzar, okay, you're still awake, is ruling. He's the guy you're to fear, right? But do you remember how Daniel started his story? The very first verses, what did he say? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, one more time, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord, the Lord, who's in control? The Lord. Now, this creates some bigger problems because What Daniel's saying is that the reason Jerusalem fell, the reason that Babylon's winning, the reason all of it is going to hell in a handbasket is because someone, namely the Lord, decided that this was the right course. And there are a lot of questions that come from that. We're going to tackle that next week. I hope you'll be here with us. But for now, I want you to see this one thing. It did not matter to Daniel who was in office. It did not matter which administration was in the Oval Office. Daniel knew that God was in control. In fact, during the 70 years that Daniel would serve in the Babylonian government, he served under three administrations, all of which were ultimately subject to his God. The Lord delivered. Daniel's hope was not in the powers of this world. It was not in the power of the empire. It was in the power of his God. And he held on to that hope, and that hope gave him courage. Even in Babylon, even when everything is falling apart, Daniel would say, God is still in control. Do not give up. The story is not over. And this is the hope that we as Christians have as well. It does not matter how dark it gets. It does not matter how how hard life becomes. We know that the story is not over, and better yet, we know how the story ends. We always have hope. That's Daniel's first secret. But the second one builds on it, and that is this. Daniel had humility. Daniel had humility. Does this mean that Daniel thought poor of himself? No. Do you remember his description for himself in those first verses? Remember, Daniel's writing this, right? 
He describes himself and his friends. They're all like no blemishes, fit dudes. Like uh, they're the smartest. Right? Remember all that? I mean, I, it's incredible description. They're like the Bradley Coopers of Babylon or something. They're just these great looking dudes, right? No, he didn't think low of himself, but he thought highly of others. And Daniel knew, Daniel knew that even the Lord's enemies deserved to be treated with respect. Look, at, look back with me again at verse 8 one last time. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Watch what happens here. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And I got to tell you, this just really strikes me as odd. Does that strike you as I, I mean, the, the, the open hand, the, the humility with which he approaches this situation See, sometimes I think in our Babylons today, we, we can feel like somehow, I don't know, there's this idea in Christian circles that somehow we have to defend God's reputation, right? That we've got, got but, but God doesn't need our defending of his reputation. He can handle his own reputation. Our assignment is to respond with humility and respect to every person we encounter in this world. Yes, we are called to be ready to give an explanation for our faith. Paul's very clear about that. But you know what he says? He says we are to do that with gentleness, respect, and grace. And this is exactly what Daniel does. Look what the very next verses. Now God had caused the official. Look at who's in charge again. God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men in your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over him, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servant for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Oh, the oppression of Babylon. Lord, may that never be my suffering. <laughs> then compare our appearance to that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Isn't that interesting? Daniel chooses to hope in his God. Daniel chooses the path of humility, but Daniel makes one final and critical choice, and that is this. Daniel chooses the path of wisdom. You see, this is what we're confronted with ultimately when we come to that decision moment. When, when we, we know that God's ways, God's wisdom calls us to go left, but our culture is calling us to go right. Or God's laws, God's guidance calls us to go right when our culture is calling us to go left. We are confronted with this very dilemma, this very choice. And what Daniel knows, what Daniel does in this moment is he trusts in God's wisdom instead of the culture's wisdom. He trusts in God, God's wisdom instead of his own. And that's exactly what happens. In the end, God's wisdom proves true. Look with me at these final verses. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to, last time, Nebuchadnezzar. The king, I love it. Y'all are on it. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel. 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the other magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there through the first year of King Cyrus. Now there's a lot more to come in Daniel's story. But what we see is Daniel choosing the path of wisdom, even though it doesn't make sense in the moment, even though it would be easier to conform, he chooses the guidance of wisdom, the guidance of his convictions, and God comes through. So this morning, as we end our time in chapter 1, did you all know we did a whole chapter of Daniel just now? High five. Good job. As we end chapter 1, I want to come back to that question. Is there an area of your life where you are forsaking what you know, you know, you know to be right simply to choose the path of conformity? Look, I want to reassure you, Christians, this is not a matter of salvation, right? We, we follow one who is even greater than Daniel, Jesus, who lived the perfect life died the perfect death and rose from the dead so that we could be favored and approved of by God. That is done. But we are yet called to a path of holiness. So let me ask you again. Is there an area in your life where you are forsaking conviction for the sake of conformity? What if today, what if today on the first Sunday of 2019, you resolved, just as Daniel did, you decided in your heart, God, today, today I want to choose your path of wisdom. What if God's wisdom could prove true for you just as it did for Daniel? Can we pray? Father, thank you for the gift of your word, your scriptures, for the life of Daniel, your servant who suffered much, that we might learn what it means to trust in you even in the face of Babylon. God, for my friends here today, even the ones I have not met yet, God, I pray that they would hear your invitation, your call to the path of wisdom, to the path of conviction. Pray that they would know what it is that your spirit is inviting them to, each in their own heart, and that you would give them the courage to respond to take a step in your direction. Thank you for loving us, Jesus. Thank you for your grace that covers us. Thank you for not giving up on us and calling us to our best life, a life of holiness set aside and dedicated to you. We're grateful. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.